episode 12 of the Buddy Ball podcast. Today I'm joined by Eric Pincus. Eric wears many hats in the basketball world, but most notably he writes for Bleacher Report, publishes his salary cap sheets on basketball insiders, teaches at Sports Business Classroom, and has appeared on NBA TV in the past. He is quite plugged in around the NBA world, which is what made this conversation so interesting. We start by talking about what it means for him to be a girl dad as the father of three teenage daughters. We then talk about what his work schedule is like this time of year and the relationships he has built en route to becoming the accomplished media member he is today. We also touch on how he explains cap minutia to the masses in layman's terms. We hit on a number of interesting NBA topics, such as potential extensions for Julius Randle in New York and Zach Levine in Chicago, the role that agents play in the NBA ecosystem, specifically with regard to the J.J. Redick situation in New Orleans, given that Redick shares an agency with Zion Williamson. And we also have a conversation about Chris Paul's contractual future with the Phoenix Suns. We end with a few rapid-fire questions for Eric that hopefully won't get aggregated too much, including predictions about the futures of players like Ben Simmons, Damian Lillard, and Kawhi Leonard. Great episode ahead with a prominent media member. But first, Chicago! Hey, Eric, how you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're uh, definitely my most prestigious guest. I don't think I've had anyone who writes for Bleacher Report on my podcast yet. So yeah, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Well, thanks for asking. Happy to do it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I wanted to start on a more personal note before I we get into the basketball kind of things, although this answer probably has some deal to do with, with basketball. So concept of being a girl dad, came in the mainstream last year for, I would say, kind of a really, you know, sad reason with the passing of Kobe. And I feel like more and more I see people kind of like posting on social media or just like being actively proud of being a a girl dad. And you have three daughters yourself. So I would just love to hear, you know, what that's like having, you know, all girls, you know, I know at least one plays basketball and just kind of how that's shaped you. Uh, well, uh, let's see. Uh, my oldest just turned 18, which is really insane. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, because it's hard to like, I remember 18 pretty well. Like, I don't think we all, we have, we have glimpses of like when we were four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. However, like you remember stuff, but you weren't quite like your grown up self yet. And while I'm a lot more mature and I have a lot more experience, like I remember graduating high school. I remember like going to college and I remember all that stuff. It's not like it was yesterday, but like, you know, recently, even though it's not recent, it feels recent. So it it is a bit uh, overwhelming to that they're, you know, that they're growing up. My youngest is 13, almost 14. And then my middle one's about to turn 16. So uh, as far as the, like, we wanted the first one to be a girl. That was something that we both, my wife and I, you know, she was always like, whatever, you know, I wanted a girl first and then we'd figure out later. And then the next one was a girl. And then by the third time I was like, 
very confident we'd have another girl. Uh, just seemed like that was my fate and in a good fate. So I, I love it. It's, it's a blast. Uh, it's a little different because there are differences between genders that um, in traditional roles anyway, uh, that you have to adjust to. So I'm used to uh, thinking about things a certain way and my way of thinking isn't going to fly all the time because um, it might not take into account things that I never would have thought of. And um, like, what was it the other day? Yeah, like we watched, um, there's like a TV show that I was watching with my older two girls. It's one of the Marvel shows and I'm not gonna do any spoilers on it, but uh, there was like a scene where there was just a hug that happened. And like for my daughters, they flew off the handle like someone had just been murdered or it was like some re big reveal. And it was like, for me, like I, it was a great moment and was nice, but it didn't like hit me like it hit them. And I was like, wow, I wonder if that's a gender thing or if it's, you know, an age thing. I don't know, but it felt like it was something like they were connecting in a, in, in a, in a, in a different way. And I know that like, you know, there are female traits that are called female traits and male traits that are, you know, and, and it's, there's a blurred line. And I, I think people of my generation were more progressive than the people of the generation before us, right. but that clearly there's even more progression. And as just, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, adjusting to like, learn, just learning really about things like pronouns and, and things like that and how they're in their importance. And for me, it's like, I have to adjust to grammar because like they is plural and mm -hmm. I'm just from like a grammar perspective, I just have to adjust to that. Um, I'm not making a judgment on whether it's the right. I'm just saying like my, there's a squiggly line on my, on my, my grammar checker, I got to adjust to, you know? So, but um, generally speaking, you know, I, I, you, you try not to like, I, I don't want to in any way think they can't do certain things like my girls, like there's, they, they played sports, like any dad would want his sons to play sports. I would imagine, uh, in my case, I'm, you know, we're a basketball family. All three of my girls played, uh, we just put, you put them in stuff. Like my oldest girl played softball for like one, one or two games and was like, actually it was, yeah, it was little league and, but the time didn't work. So we ended up having to leave the team just cause the scheduling, but she had a blast with it. And like, we've done mostly they played basketball. My youngest has been pretty serious about it and loves, loves the game and plays uh, regularly. And, um, you know, I just support her as, you know, I don't see, I, I've coached the, the women's game. I've coached her and I love coaching women. And I've actually had a better time coaching women uh, because I have noticed that there are at that age, maybe it's a maturity thing, but uh, it's, it's more fun to me. And by the way, I've had that conversation with Kobe before he passed. Really? Um, and I've had that conversation with like Anton Jameson, a uh, former Laker, former warrior, former wizard, former a bunch of stuff. Uh, actually, he's with the Wizards right now, I believe. I'm pretty sure he's still with the Wizards. Yeah, he's in the front office. Um, but we just had that conversation because of our situations in life. And he's coached boys and girls, and I've done the same. And and there's just uh, like a more of a, a team game on, on the women's side. I, again, I don't want to generalize too much, but at least from my experience, coaching women's sports um like you're playing basketball you're not just like with boys it's a little bit more just like everyone's trying to score everyone's just like trying to get to the basket or they're trying to be Steph Curry and just jack up shots whereas when when I've coached girls it's like they need each other to to succeed and they rely on each other a little bit more and that's like the concept of basketball is not just like one person doing everything but like how could these five players on the court 
help each other in such a way where the ball goes in the basket or you get a stop, you know, if you're playing defense, but if you're playing on offense, how can we as five get the ball in the basket? Whereas with boys in coaching, I felt it's been more of like, how can I get the ball in the basket? And so I've coached girls more than boys. Cause it's been, I haven't coached lately now that my girls are, are a little bit older, but uh, that was like the time of my life. And I, I, I learned a ton about basketball from coaching more so than I really expected to. That's a great and super powerful answer. And I'm, I'm glad that was my first question because I, I think that really, you know, gets the listeners to understand maybe the, the personal side of you before we get into, you know, what you do for a living, which is the NBA. I heard you mention this, a recent podcast you were on that, you know, the, the casual fan might think, oh, the regular season is over. We just have the finals. So there's a game like every other day, like your, your work, like you probably don't have to do much, but as I know, and maybe some other people know your work is really picking up and it's probably going to reach its peak, you know, at the end of this month, early next month. So I'm just wondering, you know, what your work schedule is like preparing for, you know, the, the new salary cap year. Well, um, so you, yeah, I, I, the, the comment, the conversation that I had had is that, uh, like I would pick my girls up from school and you get to know the other fathers or mothers or whatever. And they're, you know, they know what I, some, a lot of the guys, a lot of the fathers would have an idea of what I do. Maybe they're basketball fans have, you know, a sense of, of my, you know, whatever, working for the LA times in the past or Bleacher report. And so they're like, yeah, so yeah, you, you know, this, you, you just take off all, you know, I have like months off and, <clears throat> but like the busiest time for me is, is the off season. And that, and that's not the same for every reporter. It's, it's, you know, my focus is on, uh, the business side of the NBA. So I think beat reporters who are writing game stories on a paper deadline, which is different than like an internet deadline, but you you might have to have a filing by 10 with the LA times. We had to get it in by like 10. Oh gosh, there were different, there were multiple deadlines like it, and it depended on which edition would get the text. And, but there was a hard one, I think at maybe 1040. And then at that time, the NBA games would end around 1030. So there was like this brief window and I would have to like rush into the locker room and I'd work with the beat reporter. I was blogging for the, for the site. And then I would get the quotes and text the quotes in so that he could get them into his story. And we just barely get it in. Um, so for some reporters, it is during the season and then like off seasons more casual and um, maybe you go to some draft workouts. But for me, it's all about like understanding where each team's, cap position is and you have to know two because the, the basically uh, we'll, we'll go by like a normal schedule would be july 1st it's actually august 2nd this year but in a normal year on july 1st once you get from june 30th to july 1st all of the contracts roll forward to the next season but you can make trades up until that point after the season is over so uh, april 15th roughly for the teams that don't make the playoffs and then once you're eliminated you can make a trade up until the end of the finals that those last two teams like today, the bucks and the Suns can't make trades, but the Clippers and the Hawks can make trades now, but they're all based on this year's numbers, which is the 2020 21 season. And then as of July 1st, or in this case, August 2nd, it rolls over to 21, 22. So all the trades made at the draft, which is usually historically the biggest day in the NBA for trades more so than the trade deadline you're based on this number. And then uh, a week later, you're based on a whole other set of numbers. And that's um, typically it's, so it'd be July 1st, and then there would be a moratorium 
And uh, there could be some transactions, but most transactions wouldn't execute until July 6th. And I think that's got to be like August. I think it's actually August 6th. I think they yeah, just have I, a shorter. Mm-hmm. I think they just have a shorter moratorium this year. We're trying to get back to some semblance of normal normalcy. Uh, whatever. So, uh, but that's my job is to look at every team, prepare, and I need to know every free agent uh, within reason, like you know, every viable free agent. I don't really specialize in the draft, so I I um, am more reactive there. I get to know the draft pool a little bit, but that's not where my specialty lies. And for those who are draft experts, like this is the big crunch time right now. Like they're gearing up for that. For me, I'm mapping out. Like I've got all my my data prepared for next season, uh, where I know where every team's max cap is, what their cap holds are, what their trade exceptions what how many roster spots they have some teams are are almost full already and some teams have practically no one under contract so each team's going to be in a different situation and um it's my job to to get that together and then once they start signing um unique to me and what i do is i publish on basketball insiders the player salaries and i build out cap sheets and i think most people from the in the world get those numbers from me or a couple other places, but mostly from me and from basketball insiders. Uh, I know that like, um, I don't think ESPN publishes them. Bobby Marks gets the numbers, but they, I don't think they can publish them. Uh, a few other locations get them, but uh, my job is to get that data out and get it published as quickly as possible. And then also I teach at Sports Business Classroom. You can see that right there. Uh, if you're on the on the visual, if you're watching us, if not, you're listening. I just pointed right to my uh, above my shoulder. Uh, but basically it's a class that teaches how to get into the business of basketball, how, studying things like the salary cap, sport, uh, rather coaching analytics, uh, scouting. Um, it, it's less, less coaching, but we touch on coaching. It's more about getting scouting analytic jobs and then media and broadcast and that sort of thing. And so I teach that in this case, usually it's in early July, this case it's in, it's in August. And so I'll be at summer league teaching this class, which is a blast and it's a tremendous amount of work. And there's a lot of preparation for that. So uh, I wish I had more free time. I always think I'm going to have more free time. It never seems to work out that way. Just how my life has always gone. I, we, I, I don't get bored. I, I wish I, I wish I could, I wish I could just like have nothing to do, but that's just not how I'm, I'm wired. And so uh, year round, I mean, there's a little bit of quiet time in August, uh, which would be normally, I guess, September under normal. Well, I guess this year will be September. I don't know. We may not get any break this year, but a normal break is around August uh, when they release the schedule. But again, it's different for everyone. So like for the PR departments for teams, August is one of the busiest times because they have to do the media guides, which is basically writing a book about your team. And so, um, and for those who prepare schedules for the, the, the schedulers for the NBA, that's their busiest time leading up to. So, you know, there's, there's barely ever any full time off. I get a little bit of time off normally at the end of August, mid August, maybe into early September. And I, I have a follow-up question to one of the things you mentioned. So as, as you said, you published player contracts on basketball insiders. And I think there's a lot of casual basketball fans who, you know, when they see Woj and Shams tweet something like a player is signing with this team or this team is drafting this player. The first question that someone asks is, how the heck are they getting this information so so fast? And for me, 
who's a little more deeper into it, more on the cap side of things, I always ask myself, wow, how does Eric know all of this information? And I'm, I'm not going to ask you how you know all that information or who your sources are, because that's what makes you you. Like That's what makes it so other people aren't doing this. So I, right. I just want to ask how, like talk at a high level about that journey, like building connections and how you've gotten to the point now where you're getting accurate information out there that other people value that other people just don't know, or it's, it's not published anywhere else. Right. Well, I mean, it's really a relationship business. I learned, I learned that some time ago. I've been doing this since about 2002, give or take. So it's almost 20 years, almost two decades. I started relatively late. Um, I was doing other things professionally and sort of uh, took this on as a side career because I loved it. And then it actually became something I could make a career out of. Uh, but you know, that, that's the long and short of it is, is that you make connections with people. And to do that, you have to be a genuine, for the most part, there are people who are successful who aren't genuine. For me, I feel like you have to be genuine. You have to be kind. You have to be trustworthy. Uh, no one's going to give you information if you then go blab about it and, and expose them and, and get them in trouble. Uh, or if they feel like anything they say is going to be all over, uh, you know, aggregated, whatever. And there's still some of that. Like I write stuff for Bleacher Report. They love, uh, you know, when I get words from executives on their opinion on other teams or I had something recently, what was it about THT where, you know, something was said, the, the comment was, is that he, the, per, the person would max him out, but we were talking about the max of what he's eligible for, which is not the actual max. And uh, it's the arenas rule max, which is a lot still. Right. And then in the actual article, the amount written was about half of the arena max, arenas max. So it wasn't like, it had to do with Damian Lillard and the Lakers and like a path to, to getting Damian Lillard, which I don't expect, but it was the, this is what the editors asked me to write on. And like, is it possible? I said, they asked me, is it possible? We're not going to write on it if it's like impossible. I said, yeah, it's possible. I don't think it's likely, but if he, if he becomes the villain and tries to force his way out of Portland, which is very, very feasible that that might happen at some point, that at some point he may direct that he wants to trade. Is it going to happen this summer? I don't know if it did. I think that they would rather not trade him to the Lakers for a lot of reasons. However, you know, James Harden was able to force more or less where he wanted to go within a, a range. And Lillard would probably have that same capability. And so, uh, but the, the main thing I was writing about was like Taylor Horton Tucker. And I mentioned how, like, if he was valued by the Blazers. Um, but yeah, I included that, that line about, him being max worthy and it was aggregated like he was the max and people don't really have that nuance of it and unfortunately people don't read uh people read they read casually like um they don't really like it's not a blanket statement some people really dig in and love and really get to the end but like we have to be careful like with what i write with with all writing in nba uh circles and i'm sure in other circles as well like you can't really assume that the reader is going to finish the story. Like I, if I were, if I had my way, I would get to the point probably in two or th paragraphs, two or three, or maybe even four or five and like build to it. I would rather make the case to my conclusion, but because people don't necessarily read, we kind of have to state, here's the conclusion. And then you have to, you know, like a thesis sentence mm -hmm. and then build to it. And I don't like it stylistically. I didn't like it in, in elementary school and high school when they first taught it to us. I was like, why am I going to say this? And then I, why, why it doesn't make sense. Like we know, whatever. 
like, let me lay out the, the story logically and take you on a journey from A to A to Z. You don't like have like a, you know, we were talking about like uh, the Marvel show. You don't get like, they don't say like, here's the end scene. And then right. like how you get there. And some, some shows will do flashbacks where, you know, they'll do like as a stylistic thing, you see the person is like in a hellscape and, and then they're like, you know, 28 days earlier, something like that. Right. Like um, whatever. So uh, as far as like, relationships and 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 all that like you have to understand that you know if you're trustworthy you're not blabbing everything and yeah like i said there's some of my stuff does get aggregated and, and there is that aspect of it but um people got to know me and got to feel like i was someone that was passionate about the information that i was using that i was using it for good measure that i was delivering it um professionally and i don't know how the nba feels about it. i don't know how adam silver feels about this stuff getting out. But if you think about it logically, all the teams in the league need to know all the other contracts, right? In case they want to make trades and agents, there's a certain amount of uh, transparency that needs to be with, with the, the NBA players union to make sure that the contracts being signed are legal and not, um, you know, that there's no, no funny business going on. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people with their hands on a lot of things. And if you're around long enough and you're a professional and you're generally good to people, and that's try how I try to live my life, that it, it tends to come back in a positive way, at least in my experience. So that's kind of where, uh, like from an overall point of view, uh, I've gotten this kind of information and it's a lot of work and it's, it, it's not like, oh, I have like some feed of like data that populates my list and I don't ever have to do work. It's like people come and go and, and they don't stay in the same jobs long things happen. Um, and you just got to roll with it and have uh, a lot of relationships and maintain those relationships. And a lot of the data is very, a lot of minutia, a lot of detail that other people don't care about that I care about and some other people care about. So, you know, I got to find people who care about it the same way who can help me get to it. Uh, so that I'm not a bother hitting them up about obscure little details in someone's contract that most people wouldn't give two craps about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a great answer. And I, I hope the listeners who may not be super interested in basketball at least take some networking advice from from what Eric just said. But for me, I mean, that's awesome. I've always wondered that as someone who frequents your Basketball Insiders pages. I wanted to ask now about how you explain the work that you do, which is really hard to understand from a cap perspective to like the casual fan in layman's terms and maybe give an example. Um, because the, the one that I thought of is, you know, when, when it was announced in mid June of 2019, the Lakers were trading for Anthony Davis. I mean, the, the first question people ask is like, why isn't he in a Lakers Jersey the next day? And that's an easy answer. Like, okay, well, they have to wait till the next salary cap year. They have to wait till next month. But then, and you probably remember this a lot better than I do in terms of, of the details, there was talk of, well, if you wait until 30 days after DeAndre Hunter signs, like the outgoing salary would right. be more, which would give the Lakers more cap space. But that's really hard to explain to someone who just likes the Lakers, you know, and, and, right. and doesn't really follow this stuff at the level that you do. So is that a, a good example of like explaining minutia to the masses? And like, what are some other examples that you have? Uh, well, I mean, generally speaking, I can't assume that someone knows what the hell I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Right. And so like if I'm speaking to a class of students 
at Sports Business Classroom who are all studying the cap and learning the rules, there's a certain like baseline of assumption that I have that, yeah, they're going to know what, if I say MLE, they'll know what that means. You know I mean? Like they'll know what some of the exceptions are or uh, what the hard cap is. If I say apron, they'll know what that, that means hard cap. Like, but most people like I, they don't, they're just not going to know stuff. And that's not uh that's not a negative. I'm just saying like, they don't, a lot of people don't care to know this stuff. They just want to know like the meat and potatoes of it. And so I'll do like local radio a lot and they want, like, they're going to ask questions that um, the host isn't even going to get. And I, look, I'll be honest, like I worked at the LA times and they were not that strong with their cap stuff at all. And that not, not, they were all, they were awesome. Like what they did was unbelievable. And their gift for like storytelling and relationships with players and teams is like, you know, I learned so much, but they didn't have that kind of like cap knowledge, which to me was surprising. Cause like you're the paper of record. And, but I would like try to explain stuff to them and I could see like me losing them as in the conversation. Um, and that, you know, that, that I look at my audience like that. I'm not trying to treat them like they don't like in any way belittle their intelligence, actually the opposite. Um, I'm just assuming that there, there's a baseline of, of, of intelligence that if they want to learn this uh, and, and if they want to follow my logic, I'll break it down as best as I can, as simplistic as I can. And there are some things like I'll round like, you know, and it's, it, like for me, I'm like exact. Like if, if I'm having a conversation with somebody uh, with a team or an agent or somebody that we're actually talking like real, real stuff about, then I'm going to be very specific. For instance, like the salary cap is projected to be next season's 112 points. And, uh, but that means that like the max will be about 28.1 for one level and 33.7 and 39.3. So the first thing is let's just round it up. So like the max is going to be about between 30 to 40 million. Let's just call it roughly 30 to 40 million. And I don't need to break it down that like, okay, this guy's been in the league this number of years and this guy's been in the league this number of years. And, you know, so like the max for like a, a, a Lillard or someone like that's probably around 40 and, and, and maybe a rookie, a young player like John Collins, call it 30 million. So like, my inclination is to be exact, but I have to fight that and just sort of like gloss it into round numbers. Um, and then when you do get into really complex situations, my inclination for the LA Times or for even for Bleacher Report would be to explain that, to, to really detail it. Whereas sometimes it just doesn't need to be in the story. You can just sort of say, because of some of the archaic or complex or uh, salary cap rules, uh, this isn't legal, uh, da, 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 da. you know, so I, I would gloss over stuff. So uh, I used to write a lot more for basketball insiders uh, f as far as, um, you know, salary cap oriented stuff. And I would get into more detail there because the audience there was deeper into that than there, than at the LA times or bleach report, but that's just not what they're coming to me for. Some people will come to me for explanations, but sometimes they're not really coming for like the, the whole explanation they want an idea of what's going on. So like the arenas rule with, with Taylor and Horn Tucker is very complex. And it's, you know, I, I did a video, I have it pinned to my Twitter feed at, at Eric Pincus, E-R-I-C-P-I-N-C-U-S. And it breaks it down in like 14 minutes. And I did my best to simplify it there. But like, if you asked me to explain that in writing in like two lines, two sentences, it's probably not feasible. So you just sort of gloss it over and just say, in his unique situation, 
Um, there's a limit to what other teams can pay him that benefits the Lakers. Um, but if another team does give him an offer sheet, it could cost the Lakers a ton of money, make him super expensive down the road. Right. That's, that's relatable. Like, you know, you clean it up. I'm not going to explain like every little detail, but my, also my job is also to have those deep conversations. If I'm consulting for someone, if, um, you know, and, and the thing is, is I'll be honest, like I've talked to some general managers who are like, not that different from the people at the LA times were like, eh, this is over my head. I don't even want to like, and I, I have some friends who work for some teams who are like, their job is to constantly simplify, make visuals, make, because the, a lot of times the person making the decision doesn't want to know how they got there. They just want to know the decision. Like here's three or four menu choices that we can do. Don't break it down. Why exactly in every little detail, it's not going to help me and my job where I'm managing 250 people or 200 people or hundred people, or whatever, even if it's 20, 30 people, it's a lot of people. So um, that's the idea of it. I'd rather be more, I'm more of a completist and a, someone who wants to explain it and, and get deep into it. And that's okay. That's great for the audience when they're there with me. And I do do some streaming when I have time. Unfortunately, I don't have as much time as I'd like. That's like the one thing that I wish I had more of. Um, but in those streams, I pretty much just do what I would do when I'm thinking it through and I walk it through and I try to get, I try to explain it, but more I'm, I'm assuming there's a, a level of understanding coming in. If you're sitting through and watching me stream for two hours, you're probably someone who has a basic understanding of the cap enough to follow. And, and if not, I'm not sure why you're there. And that's great. If you are, I'm, I welcome anyone to listen and learn. Uh, and some people will hit me with questions or emails and all that. I'm, I'm very, I try to say yes, try to answer as much as I can, uh, try to be generous with my time as best possible. Uh, that's not always the case. This, you know, for you asked me to come on, I'm happy to do it. Uh, and I generally try to say yes whenever I can. And uh, I'm happy to be here. So it's, it's, it's great. And then you helped me just the other day when I needed a little bit of help, um, just a right. little bit with some, uh, some research. So it's, it's, uh, it's a two-way street. So. All right. Now we're going to get, nerdy we're gonna get we're gonna get into some what i've deemed to be some interesting cap scenarios for uh regarding specific players on specific teams so i'm just gonna lay out the you know high level details and then i would just love to hear your thoughts and you obviously understand this at a at a deeper point than i do so i'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these so the first is there are two players on eastern conference teams who are going into the last year of their contracts and probably are being paid below market value. And the teams have the option to renegotiate and extend those players. So that Zach Levine on the bulls and Julius Randall, who somehow has a, well, I understand why he has a partial guarantee, but now, you know, in hindsight, it's crazy that he has a partial guarantee, but anyway, so those two players are able to renegotiate and extend. And I'd love to hear what that means to you. And then just kind of any details of like, what's the history of renegotiating and extending and kind of what, what you think those teams will decide to do? Well, um, I want to double check that on Julius. I'm pretty uh, sure he has like 5 million guaranteed. Oh no, you're right about the guaranteed part. Um, it's the Reno part, the renegotiation part. Oh, because he, uh, he only has early bird. Is that? Oh, he has full bird. Let me, um, I'm checking the date of his contract right now. I'm pulling up my sheets here. I think oh, he, he only signed a three-year deal, right? Right. So this will be the third year. He has 4 million guaranteed. Right. Not, so, not that it matters, but. 
for a Reno, it has to be a four year or more. So mm. yeah. So he signed on July 18th, 2019. Right. So he actually, he is not eligible and that's sort of an issue. The issue being that um, the most that the Knicks can give him in an ex- he is extension eligible. That would be two years after he signed on a three-year deal. It'd be two years after he signed. So July 8th, 2021. So as of yesterday, although technically because of our weird schedule, that's probably August the 9th or 10th or something like that. Um, so he will be extension eligible, but the most that they can give him is 120% of what he's making now, which is based on call it 20 million. So 22 million, right. And we're 24 million, 24. Rather. Yeah. Right. 24 million. Um, so that would be the most they can give him in the first year. And if he's somebody who is an all-star, which he is, and thinks that he's max worthy in 2022, 23, uh, when the max for him, he'll be a middle tier max. Let me double check that. What's his years of service drafted in 2014. Right. So his years of service is, um, right now it's seven. So it'll be eight next year. So he's in that middle tier. So he'll be a uh, 30% of cap, which is roughly 35 million. So, Let's say he has the opportunity to lock in a long-term deal, not even that long-term, but a few more years starting at 24. Or he could hit free agency with the Knicks and get 35 from the Knicks, let alone someone else. I don't think he's a likely candidate to extend if he thinks he can get that money. There's a, a benefit for getting the security of locking in a deal, but only if it's enough. And that, that gap of about 10 million roughly is probably not enough to lock him in. If it was one year, 10 million, you could debate it, but over three or four years or whatever, three years, uh, that's enough money that he'll probably wait. Uh, and you always face the injury risk injury. So um, it's, but, but you did mention uh, Zach Levine and uh, I had actually written on him some time ago. People kept saying like, uh, you know, the bulls can't extend Zach. And so they're going to have to see what happens in free agency. So maybe they should, move him before then. And I wrote about it at Bleacher that like, I think people are missing, like they can extend him as part of a, a renegotiation. And the way that that works is you need to have the kind of cap space to pay him. You can now pay him up to the max and the max for a player like Zach, who is uh, in the league seven years. So his max would be also in that, that close to that Julius Randall range. So in the 30, where it, it last time i counted it was i think about 14 million dollars more than he makes now give or take so if the bulls have 14 million in cap room that they saved for him renegotiate his contract up and extend it they can add some years on he gets a raise immediately and so that would be based on number one their willingness to do that and then also their cap flexibility because they owe money to thaddeus young but it's not guaranteed it's a very similar contract to julius in that it's a big, not as big, but it's a big contract, a big number, 14, 15 million. He's making what, 14, two, but only 6 million is guaranteed. They also have uh, Sadoransky in a similar kind of situation. Uh, and then they have the rights to Lori Markinen, who's a restricted free agent. They have to decide on it. I, my gut says is that they're not that interested in sticking around with Lori uh, or Lowry, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I, I try to make some assumptions, but I have to also respect that. I don't know what these executives are going to do. I don't know what the players are going to want to do. 
we can get a basic idea, we can guess, we can project. And so, uh, so the Knicks are sort of in a limited position. The Bulls have more flexibility because they can do this renegotiation. I'd have to look through. There are other players who are probably eligible. Most of them are probably players who are like on a, a four-year deal where it's been three years since they signed. So for instance, where, where are the Mavericks on with Jalen Brunson? He has a team option or non-guarantee no, it's, for it's a non-guarantee. They'd be better yeah, if it was a four. team option. If it was right, a team option, because right. then he could be restricted and mm-hmm. make him restricted right now. But since it's non-guaranteed, the only way to get him out of his contract right now would be to waive him. And if you did that, number one, he'd be claimed. And number right. two, if for some miraculous reason he did clear waivers, you would lose the rights because you waived him. So he signed a four-year deal on June 16th, 2018. So as of July 16, 2021, which is probably August 17th, or let's just call it August 16th, uh, he would be eligible for renegotiation as well. And so the Mavericks, they can give him more money. So, uh, and he would have bird rights. So, because uh, he's been with them for three years, so they could pay him a, a sizable raise immediately for this coming season. And I don't know if that's the best use of their money. It probably isn't, but it, it's just a, one of those nuances that exists. So it's not just Zach. There are other players in a similar position. It's not that common. And I think the most important note is that you have to have cap space to do that. Most teams do not have cap space. We maybe will have 10 teams this offseason with cap space. We could debate that. Like, do the Grizzlies opt in Justice Winslow? Do the Cavaliers keep uh, Jared Allen? The, the Mavericks themselves, like does Josh Richardson opt in and do they prioritize the rights of uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. and Boban and players like that? Very easily, they could be over the cap. And then there's teams like the the Thunder who are probably better off being over uh, because of all, all the trade, trade exceptions. exceptions. Yeah. Uh, and the Magic, I think, have a big trade exception for Fournier. Fournier. 17 so, million. Yeah. Right. So I don't think they would be under the cap anyway. I think their projection is they're over. Uh, but it's not always a given. Let me take a look. Yeah, they're they're projected to be about what would be seven million under the cap, which is not enough. To, uh, I I don't even consider that under. And you could say, well, maybe they could trade like somebody like let's say they traded Mobamba and didn't bring salary back. They could get to fourteen million under. What's the point of that if you have a if you lose your seventeen million dollar trade exception to get fourteen million under the cap? Right, that doesn't make sense unless there was some free agent that agreed to sign with you for 14 million, that was a compelling case. So in most cases, that's not, not the, not the case. Yeah. And obviously the other thing with a renegotiation and extension is that player has to be good enough for you to forego that cap space you could spend on someone else to just pay them more. So that's why, so I, I guess I, I just learned that Randall's not eligible, but Levine, I think if he was a somewhat inferior player to what he is now, it wouldn't be worth it, but he's kind of played himself into that where, you know, he kind of well, deserves max close to it, max money. There's, there's a big issue um, when you're running a team about control, right? Like right. when you are running the draft, you have control within a reason like you there, the agents have a certain amount of control over who they show the medical records to, which is a whole uh, contentious battle between teams and agents and players when they have their uh, their collective bargaining. That's something that I know teams would really passionately like to have, uh, like a central repository for all draft picks and whatnot, uh, where you can see their, their medical records. Um, but by and large, the draft is a controlled thing. You would know the date, the time, the, the, the pool, 
you know where you're drafting, you don't know what trade opportunities will come, but you, you at least know the conversations that you've had with teams leading up to it. So you at least have an idea of what trade options are out there. There might be something that may come up and sneak up on you, but you probably have done the legwork if you're a good franchise and you've done your homework that you at least probably know about 85% of what's going to happen uh, or at least what could happen. You don't know who takes what, when, and whatnot. You don't know what trades are going to go down around the league, but you at least know who's probably available because you've been doing your Intel research. So you know that this player is available, that player is available. So that possibility exists. Um, but when it comes to unrestricted free agency, it's different. Like we mentioned, Taylor Horton Tucker, uh, we could say Jared Allen, John Collins, these uh, Lowry market, and these are restricted players. The player, the, the teams have control. They can either pay them or they could say, we're not going to make you an offer, go find an offer sheet and we'll decide whether or not to match. And then they have the, the power of matching or not matching. So, but when you get to unrestricted free agency, teams just don't, you, you're completely at the whim of the player. You have no say you can offer, but you can't make them take it. And so the, the risk with Zach Levine is such that did he ever choose to go to Chicago? Oh, he was in the Jimmy Butler trade. Well, no, he, he signed with Sacramento and they matched the offer sheet. So I guess he's never really signed with the bulls before. Right. He was drafted by the wolves traded to the bulls hit restricted free agency they didn't make him a, a viable offer he had to go shop for a restricted uh, rather for an offer sheet as a restricted free agent got the offer he wanted was confident and comfortable that he would go to the kings the bulls matched and i i think players and their agents have long memories and that's that's um, that's where he's coming from. Not to mention that those people who did that are gone. And I don't know what his relationship is with uh, the new management. And uh, maybe it's great. Maybe he loves the situation. Maybe it's better now than it ever was. I can't speak for Zach Levine. I can only project that that's his history. He's never been a free agent, unrestricted. He never chose to play in Chicago. He may love it there, but I don't know what he loves. Uh, he's, I will say that what people say in the media, what they say to, the, to me when I'm a reporter, I, I know they're not under oath. Like, this is not me. Uh, and, uh, there's no judge swearing them in. It's just not how it works. It's not that they're lying, but sometimes people just say what, that, it's awkward. Like someone asks you a, a pointed question and you're not mentally prepared to answer it. So you just say what they want to hear. Or maybe it's 100% the truth. So some player will say like, I want to be here the rest of my career. And then like a month later, they're traded. And they're, they wanted to be traded all along. They're just saying, you know, the right thing. So um, you don't take what someone's quote is in the media too seriously. But, you know, like you do take it seriously in the sense of if you listen to Spencer Dinwiddie, he's done a lot of um, interviews and he's talked about things very openly about the business and how he feels like like he's a starter and starting starting point guards make in the $20 million plus range. And therefore him on a, a player option that's half of that roughly isn't suitable. And so he's going to opt out and get that kind of money. And if it's not with the nets, because if they want to pay him great, but if they don't, Oh, well, and he'll have to go get that money somewhere else. I don't know what's going to happen with Spencer Dinwiddie, but the point is that the nets don't have that kind of control. And now we get to the, the bulls. They don't have any control over Zach. He can leave. They can lose him for nothing. 
if I'm Chicago, I'm trying to negotiate a, a renegotiation. Again, you have no power because he might not even want that. He may not want to be there. And if you know that, to me, I would want that clarity. If I'm the Bulls, I would offer him that 14, I would earmark 14 million of the cap space to go to Zach, uh, map out the future for the team, what the vision is, how you're going to build a team that he's going to want to be playing with, that's going to contend. And if he wants, you know, he, you're going to probably try to get him to not take a player option in the last year, but he's probably going to want one and you're probably going to have to give it to him. And that might be a sticking point. So, but at least you'll know now, like where he's at. And if he's going to go hit free agency and you're like, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep this guy. Well, this is a team that probably it's, it's taken them this long to have an all-star. Now you're going to let him walk to God knows where for nothing. That that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. So I, you know, the, that, I think that that's where the power of a renegotiation comes into play. And it's very rare that it all works where it, it makes sense for the team and the player and they logistically can do it. Like for the Mavs and Jalen Brunson, like the Mavs need to get a lot better. The Bulls need to get a lot better. Uh, but the Mavs can lose Jalen Brunson for nothing as well. They have that same risk. And maybe he thinks he's a starting point guard too. And Luka Doncic is that for Dallas. And um, they may, even if you say he's their starting point forward and maybe you start Brunson, I don't know. If, is, that ha- is that the path the Mavs want to take? And do you, do you want to pay, instead of improving a team that wasn't good enough, you want to give that money to Jalen Brunson just because you're worried about losing him later. So uh, some of that, you know, the relationship with the agent comes into play, the relationship with the player, uh, those things all matter. Some agents like Rich Paul and the Lakers are pretty well tied together, right? Yes, uh, they are. Right. Like the, with the Milwaukee Bucks, there's some uh, octagon ties, right? Isn't that where uh, Giannis is at? Mm-hmm. That's right? Bam's agent as well. Right. Yeah. And Middleton is with Excel. Um, and so like, you've got Connaughton with Excel and you've got Dante DiVincenzo with Octagon and you've got Bryn Forbes with Excel and there's a whole bunch of priority sports guys too. Um, I wonder if that with the, like Bobby Portis, Portis is that Jordan Nora. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sam Merrill, some of their borderline guys, uh, as far as, uh, you know, like prospects. Um, but you could see a little bit of a pattern sometimes between teams and agents. And I, that's, you say like, how do I prepare? How do, what do I do? Like, this is this kind of stuff I look at. Um, CAA is a big one with, um, with the Knicks because the guy who basically built that out is running the team. Right. And tell them in Detroit, help build up Wasserman and got Minnesota. Uh, what I think Carl Anthony Towns is with, CAA, D'Angelo Russell's with CAA. And by the way, uh, in kind of a conflict, a minor conflict, uh, so is Gerson Rosas. He's represented by CAA. Uh, but I, you can't, though the rules are you can't represent players and coaches. It's just a different department within CAA that represents uh, Gerson. So it's, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of information that maybe the casual fan may not think about that's out there if you look closely um and it changes players change agents quite a bit so i have to try to keep up with that and it's 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 a lot to keep tabs on and i'm just you know one guy trying to do it um the way that i do it to keep myself where i can teach classes and i can be an expert supposedly go on nba tv when they have me 
Uh, the pandemic hasn't helped that. I haven't been had the chance to fly out to Atlanta for some time. Uh, I know budgets are an issue and, and travel's an issue. So hopefully we'll get back to a little bit more normal in, in the coming months. I mean, you had a lot of great stuff in your answer there. The the information, you know, the the whole NBA front office just kind of being information seekers at their core was a really interesting point you made. And I think I heard somewhere else that it shouldn't be a question of whether the Bulls should try to renegotiate and extend it because even if they try to do it and he says no to it, that gives you so much information because now you have a year basically to trade him and you can keep that close to the vest unless you know, the agency leaks it out and, and maybe get, you know, a, a better return package at the deadline, for example. Um, but you, you also brought up this, the agent part of this, and I wasn't planning to ask this, but I think I would love to get your opinion on this. So I assume you remember around the trade deadline when JJ Reddick got traded to the Mavs and he basically blasted David Griffin and the Pelicans front office. And a couple of days later, Brian Windhorst made a really interesting point that I didn't hear many people mentioned that Reddick, he might be CAA, but it's it's some agency that Zion doesn't have the same agent, but it's within the same agency. And I didn't, I feel like I didn't hear enough people talking about that. Like agents talk, especially if, if they work for the same agency. And this can maybe get into a, a greater Zion discussion, but obviously he's, you know, one of the biggest, brightest young stars in the league. And he's in New Orleans, which usually is not a location where you know, top stars stay as we've seen with Anthony Davis, you know, in Los Angeles. So I'd, I'd love to get your take on how you think that the Reddick situation may have impacted Zion and just more, more broadly, like what is the path to New Orleans keeping, you know, that caliber of a player happy in such a small market? Uh, well, um, for one, outside of Chris Stapp's Porzingis, every rookie scale extension offered that was a real massive max extension has been accepted. Um, from what I understand, Porzingis threatened to play overseas. Like, I don't think Zion is going to threaten if he doesn't want to stay in New Orleans to go play overseas rather than take a max contract unless he's traded. That's just not historically what's ever happened. And uh, so I expect Zion to stick around uh, on a, a super max contract beyond this season, uh, beyond this contract, which expires after the 22-23 season. So I don't think it's a today problem, but those relationships matter. Zion is with CAA, Austin Brown, and uh, Lisa Joseph Metellus, I believe it is. But I, again, sometimes I, I have to double check uh, that those are the, the people who are repping him still because those sort of things change. This is uh, the most recent data I have. But on uh, JJ's side, I think he's with Aaron Mintz and Stephen Human, also with um, CAA. Yeah, Aaron Mintz. So that that's that's that. Now I will say, like, when a player's traded, it's not uncommon to have some level of sour grapes, right? Like it's a rejection in a sense that like this team doesn't want me anymore. And <clears throat> so maybe that maybe you could write off what JJ said as sour grapes. Maybe he was honestly felt like he was told and promised certain things that were not delivered by David Griffin. And he said along the lines of you know, he's not the only one who thinks this way about Griff. I don't know. I worked with Griff with NBA TV. I had a great experience working with him. Uh, I didn't work with him in an NBA capacity of, of you know, owner, uh, GM, scout, player, coach, all that. So I don't have that kind of life experience with Griff, but I do have professional experience working with him. He was great. 
Um, the guy can talk. He's, you know, we, we spent a lot of time preparing for NBA TV sessions together uh, before we, we spent some time, uh, what we did like a free agent. To, we were together working together when LeBron had the big announcement he was joining the Lakers. Um, so I, you know, I'm not going to choose a side because I don't know. I just saying like, I get where JJ is coming from and it's probably true from his point of view. And I can get where, um, from a Griffin point of view of as much as you want to give people what they want and you want to trade them where they want to go, you got to make the best decision for the team. And maybe, I don't know if he delivered the, maybe he, maybe he hyped up things from what JJ said that sounded like it would be different. And maybe he didn't set the expectation properly with JJ or maybe JJ's expectation was unreasonable. So I don't know the answer, but you know, that they're also connected via agent with Zion is something, but that Zion is, you know, it would be a shock that if he didn't take a rookie scale extension, if they're giving him the max, I don't think it'd be a real worry. I think by the time Zion is ready to face unrestricted free agency, I think JJ Redick will be a memory. You know, I don't even know if he'll still be playing at that point. If JJ wants to play that long, God, God bless him. He's a Go shooter. He probably can play a number of more years if he so can I'm stay not, healthy. I'm not putting a limit on his career, but if he's going to play another five years, six years, all the power to him. So, uh, but those are the kind of things you need to worry about. Now, in the case of CAA and the Lakers, it's, it's a little more pronounced because Aaron Mintz represented a lot of the players that the Lakers took in the draft. And uh, from my intel, uh, like Julius Randle was willing to take his qualifying offer number, which was, I think, 12-4, right around there, in an extension. So what that would have done is, that, you know, the idea is that when you're a free agent, you take up a certain amount of cap space and you can pay that player more, uh, but you, you, you have to account for that cap space. You can pay them less if you agree to it, you would sign them for less. But if you want to pay them more, you have to wait uh, and use up all your cap space and then you can go over the cap, but you still have to allot for that 12-4. And from what I understand, they were like, we'll just take the 12-4 so you don't have to worry about that. We'll lock it in at that number. It'll make things really easy for you because you won't have to worry about anything. And we'll take that. That's for, that's a discount. He's going to you know be worth more than that down the road. Ultimately he is right. He's an all-star and the Lakers didn't want that. And then the Lakers didn't like D'Angelo Russell. There was some issues there. He was traded for Brooke Lopez and Larry, no Kyle Kuzma, the pick that became Kyle Kuzma. Um, and the thing there is that Magic Johnson said some disparaging things about D'Angelo along the way that he didn't need to say uh, about D'Angelo and his attitude or whatever. I was around D'Angelo and, and D'Angelo eventually became an all-star as well. Uh, he's had some injury issues and has been in a bad situation because the Wolves have had a lot of problems that aren't D'Angelo's fault. But he hasn't also solved those problems. And he was very difficult at that time, covering him up close. I, you know, I, I, he was maybe wasn't maybe the most mature player that I've met in the league. And I did catch up with him later and did feel like he had grown quite a bit, but I, I don't, I can't speak to that cause I'm not around him as much, but seeing him again, years later, it was, it was, it was um, good to see that he had, he had grown a lot, especially that all-star year. Um, but there was some negativity around that with the Lakers, with D'Angelo and with Julius Randle. And then the time came when LeBron, said I'm coming and the Lakers at the time were courting Paul George and the plan was to try to 
partner up Paul George and, and LeBron James, but he shares the same agent as, as D'Angelo Russell and uh, Julius Randle, Aaron Mintz. And I think there was a lack of trust between the Lakers, Rob Palenka, Magic Johnson, and CAA through Aaron Mintz at that time. And you can't, you have to have long memories, but you also have to have like forgiveness and understanding that you still have to work together when other players come up. But I think in that moment in time, I, I think the Lakers had no real shot at Paul George because I don't think Paul George, because of his agent, was going to trust them. And people say, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, a player's going to go where they're going to want to. If he wants to be a Laker, he'll go to the Lakers. But there was like literally a video that Paul George put out on his decision. He was like met with Dwayne Wade and, and he, it, it was broken into multiple episodes. And one of, you know, like you saw some of the meeting of, of Mintz breaking down, these are the different things. Here's the timing of your contract. Here's how you can maximize your earnings, all that. Uh, an agent can really set the tone and the, and the menu of, of how many players know that, like Chris Paul knows the cap and the rules because he's Chris Paul and he helped negotiate it. But how many really know that stuff? And the answer is most don't. And I see it all the time. I've had conversations with players like arguing with them, trying to teach them like, no, dude, that's just not how it works. Like, seriously, call your agent. Let me, you know, get your agent. If you don't, if your agent doesn't confirm what I'm telling you, get them on the phone and we'll have that conversation together. So I can explain to them how like he's leading you down the wrong path, whatever. Um, and that that's not common, but it, it's happened. And so, um, Anyway, you know, we were talking about Zion. We were talking about how that impact that Randall might have. In the, in the case of the Lakers, that was immediate. And those relationships in that moment were frayed. And I think it cost the Lakers Paul George. But had they gone for Paul George, they probably wouldn't have gotten Anthony Davis. Although, in theory, you could argue maybe they could have traded Paul George for Anthony Davis. You know, and that would have changed his thing. And maybe that wouldn't have been what the Pelicans would have wanted. Maybe they would have wanted... Uh, draft picks or something different, you know, whatever, but you could get a third team involved. So, you know, there's no one straight path. You make the best decisions you can on good faith. In theory, all 30 teams should be doing that in practice. I don't think that's the case. I think uh, there's a lot more chaos than uh, I would like. I think things are more chaotic than I want them to be. I think that I want to think that they're reasoned decisions that people looked at the cap looked at the players, looked at the coaches, made the best decisions based on all the available information and not politics and not uh, emotion and reaction. But unfortunately, the more I do this, the more I find that uh, a lot of decisions are just made without that kind of background and preparation. All right. I have one final question for you. And you just touched on Chris Paul. And I've seen you, as you mentioned, it's easy for someone like you to get aggregated because you know the cap and you get aggregated by people who just want to read a headline or maybe don't completely understand. Uh, but I've seen you basically throw out a potential contract if Chris Paul were to opt out of this $44 million. And I think it was either three for 90 or three for 100, which seemed, and especially given that they're up 2-0 in the finals, like it seemed reasonable. I, I get that he's 36, but... I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that situation, especially given two years ago, you know, when he got traded, I would maybe, maybe not negative value, but definitely has less value than Russell Westbrook. People just assumed, well, Paul's definitely going to opt in. Now we've gotten to a point that he could maybe win finals MVP and he's thinking about opting out. He probably will opt out. 
So I'd love to get your thoughts on that situation and what a potential next contract could look like for him. Well, I mean, if that's what was aggregated, that's about right. I, I, I had um, written that my intel, this was a while ago too. This wasn't like recent um, that Chris was thinking a uh, hundred million, three years and that the Knicks were a very viable possibility because we've talked all this time about CAA. Uh, Leon Rose, who runs the Knicks, used to represent Chris with CAA. So the relationship is there. And they need a point guard and they have the money to pay him. So the, the conflict potentially for the Suns would be that DeAndre Ayton is, is due an extension. Mikal Bridges or... Um, he's due for an extension and if you're paying those guys max or close to it and I knew that DeAndre was hoping to get closer to the max and at this point I think that's a a foregone conclusion that that's what he's going to expect Bridges I had done some research and I think the low is 20 for Bridges a year Uh, from my research some people could say 15 16 but having canvassed enough I think he's in the 20 to 22 if not 25 and he could even be thinking Max too, you know, I mean, the way everyone thinks Max, you know what I mean? Right. Um, I don't know what the answer is there, but if you're paying those two dudes that kind of money and you're paying Devin Booker that kind of money, what he's getting, then the Suns are, are going to be heading into tax territory where they haven't been for, you know, in, in any, I have to look back if, he's, if they've ever been in the tax, but certainly not in recent history. Uh, certainly not with Robert Sarver, uh, the owner. And uh, I'm not going to go by reputation. His reputation is that he's not willing to spend. But I think there was a negative reputation built up over the rebuild. Like he, they went from the Nash years to the rebuild years. And then the rebuild was going absolutely nowhere until all of a sudden in the bubble, it was like, wait a second, they may have a team here, right? Like most of last year, they weren't that good. And it wasn't until the bubble that we were like, okay, I get it. And then they upgraded Ricky Rubio, who's a fine player, to Chris Paul, and now they're here, right? And there's been luck, and we can sit here and say, oh, yeah, yeah, everyone's hurt. But the Warriors' first title, everyone was hurt. You know, when, when the Warriors beat everyone, not their first first title, but their first title under Steph Curry, um, everybody they played was hurt. But that doesn't diminish that they were a dominant team for five years and won, you know, all, a ton of rings. So uh, three, three rings, wasn't it, right? So... Uh, you know, in the, in the case of the Suns, the thing to note is that an extension for Aiden wouldn't kick in until not this season, but the one after and Bridges. And if you're paying Chris Paul 44 for this year, but he opts out for 33, you're actually saving 11 million this year. But now the next year you're paying him 33 and you're paying all those other guys. So you're paying the tax that year. And then the last year you're paying the tax again paying Chris Paul 33, but players in the last year, their contracts are movable beyond their court value. They might have value for other purposes. And maybe that's a trade. Uh, Maybe at that point, Chris is winding down. Maybe you're killing it and it's great. And you're willing to pay the tax. I think the Suns would love to pay the tax in my opinion, because any team that is willing to pay the tax should be competing for a title. And here they are. So I don't know if Sarver agrees with that notion. Uh, if you ask longtime suffering Suns fans, they'll say, no, he's too cheap. He doesn't want to pay any tax. Does that mean it's true? No, that just means that they don't like him because the team was really bad for a while and they blame him. And I don't know if he deserves the blame or not. I don't know. It's hard to be a good team in this league, especially when you're in the West and the Warriors are what they are and the Lakers are what they are when LeBron shows up. 
and all the, you know, every or whatever. Um, all that said, I would pay them. I would pay all them. Uh, keep this, you know, this, this. Most of what I wrote suggested this was written. I believe I, we posted it in the first week of June when we weren't deep in the playoffs. I don't even know. I guess we were in the playoffs at that point, but probably playing uh, the nuggets at that point. Right. So, but the, the, I had written about Chris Paul much earlier than that when it came to his contract like months ago. Uh, but the argument had been like, you, you need to pay these folks worry about the tomorrow problems of potential tax tomorrow. Cause it's not, tomorrow isn't even tomorrow because you have a whole next season where it's not an issue. So, you know, you can always figure it out. You could always find a way out of money. You could you trade Sarich, trade Crowder, um, look on down the roster, anybody making money. I'm not saying to trade them now. I'm saying like in two years, maybe you don't need to be paying Dario Sarich as a backup center, the kind of money that you're paying him. It's not crazy money. But there and he's are probably ways. not going to play next year. He just tore his ACL. Yes. So that's probably negative value. Sad right. to say, but bummer. yeah. Injuries are, are, are really unfair, but they're part of life, unfortunately. So whatever, pay the, pay the man, pay Chris Paul, hundred million dollars, three years. I don't know what it'll end up being. I hope it's that exact number so I can go back and say, Hey, see, I wrote about this a long time ago. I feel like I get good Intel, but the thing is, is to understand that like, not even if you do get good Intel from the GM of the team, that's making the transaction doesn't mean that what they say is going to happen because a, they could be lying Two, they could be wrong and three, they could change their mind. Right. Or they just, you know, it, there's so many things that, so I, I try not to be the guy breaking the news of like every transaction, but when transactions happen, I'm happy to break like the details of them because it's fact and I'm sharing fact versus pseudo fact which is like agreements that haven't been executed like they're probably going to happen but we don't really know they're going to happen and so um you know you have to be careful there's a lot of stuff reported like i said people talk in the media players say things gms coaches no one's under oath they it, basketball building a team is more of a game of poker than it is like blackjack is pretty straightforward right like it's just the numbers it's just the math. The dealer doesn't bluff. They have to hit or stand on certain figures. They, it's, it's a very simple game based on a simple algorithm of like, if this, then that, right? Poker, it's like the worst hand could win, right? You may have the worst hand. And if you bet right and read the people right, then you can win a hand where you have the loser. That's not the case with blackjack, right? So um, that's what the NBA is. It's, it's, it's a 30, it's, it's more than 30, but it's like, imagine 30 players playing poker at one table. And you also have the cards represented by actors like agents. So the cards have their own agenda. So it's, if the players are the cards, it's like, you know, and this and, is deep. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> if you think about how complex it is um it's a you know it, it is so hard for teams to be successful because even when you do everything right lebron and falls over um solomon hill and hurts his ankle and um ad gets hurt at the wrong time chris paul gets covid in the middle of the, of the playoffs they survive that after a shoulder injury but kyrie irving doesn't get through Kawhi leonard doesn't get through Giannis has like an injury that probably would have murdered and killed anybody uh, on the earth. 
outside of him. He's the most like impressive, like human, physically gifted athlete maybe in, in the world right now. And he survived what would probably would have been a torn knee for anybody else. Um, so, you know, you, you do everything right and you fail. You do everything wrong. Sometimes you succeed. It's like, I, just to wrap it up, like I, my wife, when we were dating, we went to like Lake Tahoe in Nevada and or Nevada or whatever. And uh, and we were like kids, basically. I mean, we were in our 20s, but um, and she never gambled before. She, she still isn't really. And we played poker and I, I grew up playing poker and uh, you know, my, my mom taught me, my father plays poker, but just for fun, you know, and we used to have poker nights, all that stuff. Uh, but she didn't know what she was doing, didn't know the rules, didn't know anything, played for an hour. I'd given her a hundred dollars to gamble with. She doubled it in an hour. Didn't know how everyone was so pissed because she, they knew she didn't know what she was doing. And she just got lucky for that one hour and had great cards. And after an hour, she's like, all right, I'm done. And she's up a hundred and she's always been up a hundred and it's never changed because she's never gone back to do it again. Cause that's not what she, that's not her thing. So like she had great success in a very brief window without knowing what she was doing. And I hate to say it, but some teams are like my wife in that situation, you know, where they stumble into success. Uh, and she's awesome. Like she's awesome at a million things, but she just doesn't play poker other than for like one hour. So, um, but these, there are teams out there that, that get to success that, you know, we talked about it on the, I did, we did a webinar today for sports business classroom uh, today being Friday. Uh, and, you know, a big, a big running theme was, is it's important to be good, but it's also important to be lucky and you've got to be both. You just being good. Isn't enough. Being lucky might be enough for a short period of time. And you know, it happens. And some teams win when they shouldn't, but sustained success. You need to be both lucky and good in this league. I know I said the last question, but in the spirit of aggregation, and I, I don't think you should be worried because no one really listens to this podcast, but I have six players and as much as you can try to keep your answer to just yes or no, without really an explanation, they're pretty straightforward questions. So is Dennis Schroeder a Laker at the start of next season? that's a tough one and so i'm supposed to go yes or no and so if i had to actually like say with all the variables in play i'm gonna say no i i think i think it could easily be yes it's a tough one that's like if if i could rank these on like a confidence scale that's right. a low confidence one but I'll, I'll say no low confidence all right is Kawhi leonard a clipper yes medium high confidence is damian lillard a trailblazer so I'll, I'll just say yes, uh, because I need to see him uh, choose to be the villain. Right. And until he decides to be the villain, then they're not going to trade him. Why would they? Is Kyle Lowry a Raptor? No, I think they're going in a different direction. I think it's time. Yeah. Is Ben Simmons a 76er? I don't think so. I think yeah. they'll move him. I, I really do. I, you know, without getting into a conversation, it's not on him as much as it's the fit with Joel. And it is. And last one, and this is a good way to end, and is Detroit selecting Cade number one? I, I know you said you're not a draft guy, but just from what you've heard. Yeah, I mean, they should, and um, they'll entertain something like Green or some of the other guys. But yeah, they'll probably take Cade. He's the consensus number one prospect for almost anyone I, I talk to. But there are mm -hmm. some other talented kids in this draft. And so, um, yeah, I think Cade will go number one.
All right. Before I let you go, I, I'll, I'll link your Twitter and, and that kind of thing in, in the episode description. But is there any, like, any recent work that you've put out that you'd want to you know, share? Uh, that's a good question. Let's see. I recently wrote on the Suns. We touched on that. If you go to Bleacher Report, um, I think you'll find, what's the name of the article? It's um, actually the most recent one I wrote on was the Dame one. I think we touched on it briefly. Mm-hmm. It was, could the Lakers actually land Damian Lillard if he forced a trade? And you can see what um, that conversation was really about. Uh, I also wrote uh, a preview on the top 20 free agents, which is kind of a loose collection of top 20 that had to kind of take into account some of what some of the other writers had written. So there's, I don't know if that would be 100% my top 20, but that's what I wrote on. Uh, And uh, I put in what I roughly what I think they'll get and who the possible destinations are. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. I actually wanted to do more. I was like, I'll do point guards, you know, ball handling guards, bigs and wings. But they were, they were like, let's just do one. Cause you know, I may break it down that way, but not, I don't know if the readership does as much as I would like them to. So uh, yeah. Otherwise check out on Twitter. Um, if you're interested in the video I have at the, pinned to the top of my profile, I explain the arenas rule thing on Taylor Horton Tucker. I made that video around the start of the season so it's a little out of date like there might say some teams that might have money that has since changed but um the gist of what the the tht situation is is there uh, i've got some exciting projects coming up the only other thing i'll say is that uh, if you are interested in getting into the uh industry of basketball be it through media through uh the agent side the team side uh, scouting, coaching, video analytics, CBA, uh, go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Let me make sure I got the website right. Uh, I, I want to make sure I plug it right. Uh, this is something that uh, you're familiar with, of course. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, you can follow them on Twitter, sportsbiz class on Twitter, at sportsbusinessclass. It's, it's really the best program out there if you're looking to get into the business of basketball. And uh, we have a class that we're doing in, in, in person in Vegas at Summer League. And uh, you'll get a chance to learn from some real experts we've had in the past as far as speakers. I don't know what speakers. We haven't announced all the speakers yet, but in the past we've had Adam Silver and Mark Cuban and uh, Daryl Morey and Tommy Shepard and Neil Olshay and Scotty Brooks and Messiah Jiri and I could go on forever. Uh, Bernie Lee, Jimmy Butler's agent. I know I'm forgetting Pete D'Alessandro with the magic. Uh, and then the website is indeed sportsbusinessclassroom.com and you can sign up there. I, I can't stress it enough. Like if you're serious about investing in yourself and getting back, getting into this industry, that's the best way to do it. I can attest ever to what Eric just ended with. Like he knows I, I went to SBC in 2019 uh, and it was a great kind of launching pad into a career in sports, which is what I'm trying to pursue. So I completely back everything Eric just said, and I encourage you to go to SBC. It's it's not too late to sign up. But thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time. I, I learned a lot. I know my listeners learned a lot. And yeah, thank you so much. 